right, Ephesians chapter 2, continuing to go through the book of Ephesians. And before we get into this chapter, uh, it's a reminder of some key things that we saw in chapter 1 that kind of helps set up this thought that he's uh, making here in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, we see the Apostle Paul clearly giving all credit for, of our salvation to Jesus Christ, showing it was predestined before the foundation of the world that all would go to all that would go to heaven would go to heaven through Jesus Christ. He was always the plan. It was the good pleasure of God's will for all who are saved to be in Christ and to receive forgiveness of sins rather than a rewards for their works. That was the good pleasure of God's will. When God was in heaven thinking what can be done to be able to get this mankind who has fallen into heaven, it was the good pleasure of his will that it be done through forgiveness and through the payment of the, uh, of the blood of Jesus Christ. What did not please God was the idea of a fallen man going and bringing their own works. That, was, that did not bring God pleasure. That thought it was not something that uh, pleased him. Because of the fact he is a holy God. And so for God to accept works of man. If for God to accept anything that we do as a part of our atonement. God would have to compromise on his holiness. And God's not going to do that. So it was the good pleasure of his will to save people through his son Jesus Christ. Who would come pay for the sins of mankind. And then all who just put their faith in him they be saved. That was God's will, folks. That was the good pleasure of his will. And, you know, the, the demented, perverted idea of the good pleasure of his will being, you know, that Brother Daniel go to heaven and Brother Brian go to hell is absolutely ridiculous. That is not what that's talking about. But yet when Calvinists are trying to teach limited atonement and predestination, as they call it, because they're like, do you believe in predestination? Which is a trick question. Because we see that it's a thing in the Bible. But the problem is, they have a weird form of it. So that's another way that Calvinists like to trick you. Uh, you just don't believe, you don't believe in the doctrines of grace, they'll say. And who wants to say, I don't believe in the doctrines of grace? Obviously, we believe in grace. And, and, but as the Bible teaches it, and Curtis Hudson, he wrote a book years ago on why I reject all five points of Calvinism. And that's one of the things that he brings up a lot in the book. He's like, I believe in, you know, the, you know he, he'll bring up, I believe in the doctrines of grace. I believe in all these things, just not the way the Calvinists teach it, is what he always emphasizes. And I do. I believe in predestination, but not the way the Calvinists teach it. I believe in once saved, always saved, but not the way the Calvinists teach it. So they do. These are, these are tricky, sneaky things that they do. And what's funny is even if you can get a Calvinist to be honest with you for a minute, and recognize that, wait, these passages are actually talking about something different than what you're talking about. Even if you can get them to concede, okay, you're right on this passage, their terminology, terminology that they use to explain what they believe comes from this chapter. Because they'll say, well, you know, it was according to, good, you know, to the good pleasure of God's will that you know, this person not be saved. Well, where do we see that phrase, the good pleasure of his will? We see it in Ephesians chapter 1. But yet they have taken that phrase, so it sounds biblical, 
but they've made it about something that you can't find anywhere in that passage at all. So it's very clear what the good pleasure of God's will was, and uh, we've got, that's why we've got to stop going to their Greek dictionaries and things that they look at, and we can find out why, how Paul was using these words based on the context. If we just look at the rest of the passage, we can see where he was going with this. We can see why he worded it the way he worded it. It's not just about looking at all the possible uses of that word. That's, not, that's why we have adjectives and that's why we have adverbs and things like that. Those help us understand how to use that word. So let's go ahead. So now, having said all that, we're in chapter 2 and it goes on to say, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, now, remember the error of Calvinists or one of the tricks we talked about last week that they do. They proclaim a truth and then they jump to a false conclusion based on that truth. I was talking to a pastor just this week and we were talking about some of these things with Calvinists. And you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, Calvinists, they are often sometimes the best at uh, verbalizing certain truths of the scriptures. I mean, some of those Calvinists out there, they know how to put things in a way that really is impressive. I mean, and you know what? People get really mad when you hear Charles Spurgeon quotes. And I understand why Charles Spurgeon had a lot of issues. But let me tell you, some of the stuff Charles Spurgeon said was pretty good. But when he says stuff like, you know, Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. And it's just like, even when I read something that I really like that he said, I don't want to share it. I, you know, I, I don't want I, I to use that quote. But I will admit, he did say some really good stuff. But that's how Calvinists work. They give you something really good, and then they slip in some bad stuff too. And so, you know, if I want to deceive, it'll be more effective if instead of me just coming up and speaking an outright lie, if I would come, speak a truth, say it really well, then give a Bible verse, and then throw in a lie. That's going to be much more effective if I do something like that. And so it is true that when you got saved... God gave you life and raised you up. No work that you did saved you. And so what a Calvinist will do, because they believe in what is called irresistible grace, that once God, if God decided to save you, okay, then you know, obviously you have to have the drawing of the Holy Spirit to get saved. Well, I agree with that. But then what they, what they teach is if he draws you, then you know, who are you? To, you, know, you can't outdo God. That's what they'll say. And basically implying uh, we don't have a choice. So I'm going to read something uh, on that subject uh, here in a little bit. But it is true, God raised us up. And so, like, you know, you couldn't make a choice. The Bible says you were dead. Okay? And sometimes you can take these illustrations too far. Well, we were dead in trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul also taught how sin, it slays us, it kills us. Because the wages of sin is death. And there was a time... When we were, we were dead, spiritually speaking, in our trespasses and sin. That's true. That's the way the Bible puts it. But that doesn't mean that we still don't have a choice. Especially when we see so many examples of people choosing wrong in the Bible. When Jesus is rebuking people for always resisting the Holy Ghost. When he told the Jews, how often I would have gathered you as a chicken, uh, gathereth her uh, or brood, but he would not. So... Right there, we, we, there's all kinds of examples like that that we can see, but 
They will. They'll just take that verse about us being dead and then they'll come jump to all these false conclusions like you can't make a choice. That's not what that's teaching. That's not in this passage. It's not anywhere in Ephesians. It's not anywhere in the Bible. So verse 2, it goes on to say, because you know, why, why is he saying it this way? Because he says, Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. How can a dead man disobey? You know, if, they, if we want to keep using their logic, you know, that's, a, that's a really good question. You need to ask them when they bring that up. How are we able to disobey? A dead man can't disobey. I mean, can we get mad at a dead body for stinking? You know, you're going to tell him to stop? I mean, he's dead, right? But yet here, Bible says, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we were in disobedience. Meaning, we were doing something we weren't supposed to be doing. How do you do anything if you're a dead man? Again, it's, you can take these illustrations too far. Among whom we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we were dead in trespasses and sins, meaning we lived according to the lust of the flesh. We lived according to our fallen nature. This is where God found all of us. So verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. You're saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So yes, 100% true and a Calvinist can say this better than anybody. We loved him because he first loved us. God initiated everything when it came to our salvation. God provided everything when it came to our salvation. You know, had Christ not come along and intervened in our life, we would have went straight to hell and we wouldn't have seen it coming. There was nothing in you that was just like, I just want to get rid of the sin from my life and I just want righteousness. And you went looking for God. If you felt anything like that, it was because the Holy Spirit put that in you. The word of God spoke to you. And that's what draws you to salvation. That's true. Nobody can say that better than Calvinists do. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't do that with everyone. Because he, Jesus did say, and I, if I be lifted from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So I believe the Holy Spirit draws everybody. He's going to reprove the world of sin. Not just the elect. He's going to reprove the whole world Why? of sin. Why? Because they believe not on him. So, very important we understand all these things. And so, no, one, um, again, no one's better at Calvinists than expounding these. But then, they'll take these truths and jump to false conclusions like the doctrine of irresistible grace. Because let, let me just say this too, before I read uh, one of their beliefs. Here's, here's what you've got to understand about salvation. Okay? When we, the Bible is very clear that God gets all the credit for our salvation. But, that, but it's like people, they go really weird and act like us calling on the Lord and us accepting salvation is some kind of work. And because when you got saved, understand everything that happens spiritually in your life, God did it. You all understand that? You know, you and Jesus didn't raise you from the dead. Jesus raised you from the dead. And so us acting like them acting like, you know, us calling and choosing is doing some kind of work. It would be like me 
if I was drowning in a swimming pool and I, I'm going down, I can't swim, and I yell for the lifeguard to come save me, and then they come save me, and then when everybody's like, wow, that was pretty impressive what the lifeguard did, I'm like, well, you know, they did have some help. I mean, if I hadn't yelled, then, you know, they wouldn't. So me and the lifeguard saved me, you know. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I yelled, I called, but without their jumping in and saving me, I would have drowned. So it's absolutely ridiculous to act like calling on the Lord is some kind of work. They act like choose, choosing to accept the free gift of salvation, acting like that somehow does the uh, you know, thing that saves us. No. When we call on the Lord, when we by faith accept the gift of salvation, God comes along and he miraculously saves our soul. He miraculously gives us life. Now, here's the thing about it. When it comes to salvation, the Bible constantly uses earthly terms to explain what is being done spiritually in our lives. Remember how Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And it kind of threw Nicodemus at first. He kind of got like a Calvinist and kind of went ultra literal on him. You know, I got to enter my mother's womb a second time. Before. How can you do that when you're old? You can't do something like that. You know, how can a dead man call on the Lord? You know, it was the same kind of reasoning that Nicodemus had. But just understand, God constantly uses physical, earthly things to explain the spiritual. And so whenever God uses some kind of spiritual or uh, earthly illustration to explain a spiritual truth, we can't go all crazy ultra literal on that to where we start changing things in the gospel. And that's exactly what people are doing when they act like calling on the Lord is a work. It's exactly what we're doing. When you act like accepting the free gift of salvation is somehow Jesus and you saving you. Absolutely ridiculous. So, and especially when you consider the fact that the Bible flat out says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When it's telling us to trust him, when it's telling us to put our faith in him. Why did God even have to tell us if he just does it? How can we get in trouble for not doing something that God won't let us do? It just, it doesn't make any sense. But let me read, <clears throat> in case you think I'm straw manning all that, let me read a portion of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the Calvinist Bible. All right. They love this thing. And uh, this is chapter 10 of effectual calling is uh, what they call it, which is uh, along the lines of the irresistible grace. And it says, all those whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature uh, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. So understand there's a lot of truth in there, but there's a few things that they slipped in there too. So for one, it says, at the beginning, all whom God hath predestinated unto life. 
Again, using that term from Ephesians in the way that Calvinists do, not the way that Paul used it. This is not how Paul used that word. And it says, all whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only. Okay. Now, again, those whom God predestinated according to our definition are those who believe on Christ. Those are the only ones who God is going to raise up. Those are the only ones God's going to do all of these wonderful things too. But it is very clear in here that according to them, that those ones that God chose, they're assuming that, you know, they're assuming this is true from the foundation world. God picked which ones are going to get saved. That if he's chosen them, they will in fact get saved. And you know what? It is true that because God chose those who believe on Christ, if you believe on Christ, you will get saved. God will do all these things for you. There's, there's no doubt about it. But just, again, there's so many truths in here, but with these lies thrown in there. And it says in his appointed time, effectually to call. Meaning when he calls, it's going to have an effect. It's going to get the job done. And this clearly implies that not everyone gets called. And I do not believe that. I do not think the scriptures teach that at all. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches that. But the Bible does not teach that. You can't find that in the Bible. And so it goes on talking about all the things that God does, enlightening their minds spiritually, saving them to understand. But uh, you know, and a lot of these things, yes, the Holy Spirit does these. All these things are a work of God that He does in our life. But then it talks about in the end, uh, it says, effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. So it's like, yeah, you're coming of your own free will, but it's because God put it in your will to want to do it. Because, you know, obviously, we, you know, people on our side, we might, well, what if, I, what if somebody's called and they don't want to get saved? You know? So then what, what then? Well, if God calls you, you'll want to. I personally think if anybody actually believes the gospel, they will want to. I think that's a determining factor right there, especially when that's said over and over again in the Bible. I believe anyone on this planet who truly believes the gospel is going to call on the Lord for salvation. And if they don't, it's because they don't believe. And that's why we don't count people too. We don't have to be there when somebody prays. But when we go and we give somebody the gospel, they tell us they believe it and they don't want to call on the Lord. You know, we don't, we don't count them and say, you know, and come back saying we got them saved. Now, they might very well go and call on the Lord and get saved, but it doesn't make sense to do that because it doesn't make sense that somebody who believes not call. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so we're not, you know, we're not going, uh, you know, we're not going to do that. But let's read a little bit more of this. So it says, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. And it is true. It is by grace. There is nothing in us as far as any goodness in us, any works that we do. But folks, faith, all right, faith is something that God is looking for. That is something that uh, a theme we see 
throughout the Bible, and he doesn't bring that up at all. What Calvinists will just tell you is that faith is the gift. And I talked about that the other day in another sermon. We're not going to go into that. And they'll go and they will use Ephesians 2, 8, 9. All right. So rem- hopefully you remember that. So you were here for that sermon I preached the other day showing that faith isn't the gift. Salvation is the gift. Okay? Salvation is the gift because that is a determining factor. And if you have faith, God didn't look at your faith and say, wow, look how good they are. If you have faith, God didn't say, man, can you believe that person? You know, I'm amazed at them, you know, and then our faith, you know, all of a sudden makes us say, no, God sees that faith and then God comes along and he does all of the saving. He does all of the changing, you know, and how do we illustrate that? How do we explain that? There's all kinds of ways it's done in the Bible because it is, it's a spiritual thing. And so it, it uses things like raising from the dead. And you know, other and or regenerated or things like that. There's all kinds of ways we can illustrate it. But let's keep reading. So it says, uh, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases. So you know what that would mean? Unelect infants don't. Uh, that's uh, that's messed up teaching right there. Okay, And I don't have time to go into how foolish that is. I, I've talked about that before. But it says, uh, so elect infants, uh, dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when, where, and how he pleases. So also are other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. So notice here, so other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Tell me if I'm reading this wrong. This sounds like if somebody is elect, even if they've never heard the gospel, even if nobody's ever preached the gospel to them, they could still be saved. Now, I really don't see that anywhere in the Bible either. I mean, how can they hear without a preacher unless they're elect? So do you see how... Folks... The Westminster Confession, this, I think, represents the sanest version of Calvinism. Because I, I think it's, you know, it represents a pretty conservative version of it. And obviously you have people that take this because there's some things that are kind of vague. And then they'll jump to other crazy conclusions with it. They'll get real weird with this stuff. But I, I think this is pretty bad stuff here. Maybe I'm reading something wrong here, but it looks like they think elect people who have not heard the gospel, can be saved. I don't believe that. So others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature, and the laws of that religion they do profess and to assert and maintain that they may as uh, very pernicious and to be detested. And yeah, we should detest the idea of somebody getting saved any other way than Jesus Christ. But notice here, it's, it believes a person who actually does hear the word, who does have the word preached to them, they, they think they can't be saved because they're not elect, while the person who's never heard the word, because they are elect, they will be saved. This is ridiculous. 
This is bad teaching, and we don't like Calvinists, okay? And there's a lot of people out there today saying, ah, oh, you know, we got to put aside our differences, and, you know, we need to just be united on the gospel. But we're not united on the gospel if you're Calvinist. And so we don't, we don't fellowship with these people. We do not, you know, we don't just assume they're brothers. And I, I assume that they're not. Okay, I really do. The only way I think somebody's saved that's a Calvinist is if there's somebody, they, they got saved, they've been taught very little and just don't know any better. You know, and there, there's some people that, you know, they, they do, they don't know any better. I don't think they realize how bad it is. They haven't been taught that much because they, they just kind of repeat what they hear. It's just like a lot of people, they're pre-trib because they've been told that's what they're supposed to be. They never studied it, you know, but they're, you know, they claim, they claim it because that's what everybody around them does. And so I know, I'm not going to go around defending the salvation of any Calvinist. If somebody claims that label and somebody doesn't think they're saved, well, you know, anything's possible, I guess, almost. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I'm just going to assume that they're not. But anyway, um, so, you know, a lot of these confessions, they are, they're very close to the truth, but they're vague enough in some places to make it easy to those uh, who use those confessions to interpret in multiple ways. Because think about it, just like people interpret the Bible in multiple ways, you could definitely take those confessions and interpret them in even more ways. Because those things aren't even inspired. And so they, a lot of people, because they've just been told, no, these are good, this is historical Christianity, this is what Christians have always believed, they go and they kind of twist those confessions to actually try to make them fit the Bible. And so, in fact, I did, I did talk to a guy one time. He was a, he was a younger Christian. He was somebody I, I used to work with. He was a younger Christian. And he, he didn't know that much. And, and I, I remember um, somehow we got on the subject of the tulip. And he was really surprised I didn't believe it. And I think it's just because in the church that he happened to go to, they were all saying, you know, the tulip's a gospel, you know, and tulip this. But when I talked to him about it, it was very clear he didn't really know it very well. I knew it better than him, but yet he claimed to be tulip because someone told him you're supposed to be tulip. But so, uh, you know, you know, we do want to show a little bit of grace with people on these things, and a lot of the, the reform types, they spend more of their time defending these confessions. Then they do the scripture, you know, and instead of just stating clear errors in those confessions, they try to twist the confessions into truth and they'll even twist the scriptures if necessary because they do. They're, they're very married to those things because they want to look like and act like they are the historical Christians. And I'm sorry, we find out what Christianity is through the Bible, not history, because folks, look at look at what modern day history is already saying about our church. Stuff that we flat out know isn't true. What do you think the history books are going to say about us if we even make them? Okay? It's not going to be good. And it will be false. And so we're just all supposed to follow that history just because it's older? I mean, wouldn't the older it get, the more likely, you know, easier it would be to just kind of, you know, truth to get lost? But not, not in their world. So that's why we don't, we don't give, put a whole lot of stock in these things. And so much of what they end up going into... It's just a bunch of philosophical nonsense that we could never possibly understand. And obviously, there's going to be things going on in the mind of God that we don't know or we can't understand. 
But this passage here is not talking about those things. Because that's what we saw last week in chapter 1. Because they'll be like, well, you know, we don't know what's going on in the mind of God. I don't know who's elect. I don't know who is an elect. You know, so I'm just going to preach the gospel to everybody anyway. Because I don't really know. I don't know what's in the mind of God. And they will say that when talking about Calvinism from Ephesians 1 and 2. Even though Ephesians 1 is telling us what is in the mind of God. Look what it said. We looked at this last week in verse 9 of chapter 1. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Folks, his will is not a mystery anymore. The Bible told us what it is. This is his will that all that all be one, that we all be one in Christ. And I'm spending I spent too much time on this Calvinist stuff. All right. But I'm sorry. This is where they go. This is where they go to Ephesians one and two to teach their nonsense. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, let's let's try to quickly go through the rest of this chapter. See what it's all about, because another thing we need to understand about interpreting the Bible is we should always be paying very close attention to the main subject of the passage and the main point that the writer is trying to get across. And as the writer explains certain things, we can learn details about other topics that may or may not be related. But when a person's focus is always on the unrelated topic when going to that passage, that should be a red flag to you. Okay. For example, you know, we recently, when we were going through 1 Peter 3, we looked at that passage about the spirits in prison. Okay? And most people today, when they go to 1 Peter 3, their focus is on the spirits in prison. And so they go and they teach all their weird Nephilim stuff. Why? Because they're focusing on a kind of a side detail that's actually being used to illustrate something completely different completely unrelated to to anything else that's all about uh you know the um you know our salvation and and, are about what happens when we're saved that's what the passage is about the whole passage is about you know how we're supposed to live as christians and not be living like the gentiles and so while he's doing that he uses an illustration and instead of taking that illustration and making it about the subject of the chapter, they make it about their pet Nephilim subject. That's a red flag. Somebody's messing with you when they do something like that. And that is one of the big things that Calvinists do. So verse 7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So because God is good, he wants to do good for us. And that's the only reason. God does not want to do good for us because of all the good that we do. No. God wanted to do good to us and save us because he's good. Because he's loving. That's who he is. That's his character. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Why is it bringing this up? We all know this verse, but it's bringing this up, reminding us how we got saved because what God did for us that was good, it was because God's good, not because we're good. You were saved by grace. Through faith... And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And again, 
Faith is not the gift. Salvation is the gift. Okay? It's not faith and salvation because there are, there are very clear scriptures everywhere, and this is actually one of them, that salvation is the gift. So, uh, ridiculous. Just trying to force scriptures into fitting their confessions. You know, that's what they do. They get these confessions of faith. Well, we know these are true. Therefore, we interpret the verse this way. Well, here's the problem. That confession isn't true. So now we have a problem. Okay? You, that's, that's not how these things work. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So while we were not saved by works, God has ordained that those who are saved do good works. Good works are God's will for us now. And if we don't do them, we are in disobedience as children. You know what? If God's will for your life is not a mystery. You know what his will is? Good works. Obedience. That's God's will for your life. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So there's no doubt what Paul's talking about here. Notice how he only referred to them. And, and listen, these, every word's important. Paul referred to these Ephesians, these Christians. And I showed you last week how there would have been Jews and Gentiles. There were many Jews that got saved in Ephesus. But this is a predominantly Gentile area. He's writing to Ephesians. And he said, in time past, you were Gentiles in the flesh. So, and, and you were called that. You were called uncircumcision by those, not by the circumcision, but those who are called the circumcision. Made by hands. Isn't it interesting the way Paul put that? Because you know what? The circumcision made by hands is not what saves. It's a circumcision that is made without hands. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's what God does. When you got saved, God circumcised your heart. And the circumcision of the flesh has nothing to do with someone's salvation. Paul thought that in Galatians. And so it's interesting how he said, you used to be called Gentiles by those who are called circumcision. And he put it that way. You know why? Because they weren't really circumcision. Because the circumcision, while it was an outward thing, it was symbolic of an inward thing. And they didn't have it, folks, on the inside. They didn't have the real circumcision. They didn't have what God actually wanted, what was God's will for their life. So he didn't, it's like he wasn't acknowledging that that's what they were. No, they're just called that. Kind of like, those who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie and are of the synagogue of Satan. Yeah, they can call themselves that whatever they want. But we've got to get Baptists to stop acting like the liberals who, you know, believe that men who call themselves women are actually women. And we've got to stop believing the people who say they are Jews are Jews when they're not. We've got to stop, we've got to stop doing that. You know, we're, you know, we're just showing our hypocrisy when we acknowledge these things. So verse 12 because he's saying here, you know, there was a time when the Jews or those who say they are Jews put them in a different category or a lower group. They used to do that to you. They used to shut you out of the kingdom. 
They used to not allow you in the temple. They used to not allow you to participate in the things of God. But it says that at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So notice they were only aliens when they didn't have Christ. So if they were aliens when they didn't have Christ, then what would that make Jews who don't have Christ? That would make them the aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. 1 John 2.22, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. So you want to know who the aliens are today? It's the Jews. Or those who say they are Jews. All right. Stop calling Bruce Jenner a man or a woman. Stop calling, stop calling a woman. Stop. We, we, got, we got to work on this. So verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, which was God's will from the foundation of the world, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And notice, when he's talking about being in Christ, which was God's predestined plan from the foundation of the world, he's not saying this to individuals who God selected. He is letting a group of Gentiles know that you who used to be kept out have been made nigh. You've been brought in. Because at one time, it wasn't about elect versus unelect. It was about Jew or Gentile. But now, that middle wall has been broken down. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. And the dispensationalists are trying to build it back up. And the Calvinists are trying to build a new wall one that separates the elect from the non-elect. And no, that's not, that's not how that works. There's no middle wall of partition anymore. Anyone can get in now. Anyone can be a part of this as long as they go through Christ. So it says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one. Also stated in chapter 1, this was God's will. This was the good pleasure of his will to make both people one. Jew and Gentile, have broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. He said, well, you know what? Go back and read those laws. There were things that separated the Gentiles. Yeah, there were. But you know what? Jesus abolished those things. They're abolished. And they're not coming back when God goes back to his Old Testament economy after the rapture during the tribulation. Baloney. It's been abolished, ladies and gentlemen. It's not coming back. It says, even the law of commandments contain in ordinances for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So there used to be things that separated us, but he removed those things. They're gone. Then that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you that were afar off and to them that were nigh. The Gentiles were the ones afar off. The Jews were one not, the ones that were nigh. And he preached to both of them. Same gospel. Same gospel preached to both. And through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints. And I believe he's referring to those of the Old Testament too, those of the past who had already gone on. Fellow citizens, we are part of the same body. There is only one people of God. Ephesians 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So notice this temple. All right? It says it's growing all these people who have been made one, Jews and Gentiles, the saints of old, those of you today, those who will be saved in the future, God is bringing them all into one, into one building. And notice this building is referred to as growing into an holy temple in the Lord. And so, what is this building in this temple? Well, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. And you know what? It, it shames me to say that many there's many Baptists out there who believe that the church and Israel are these two separate entities. And that there's two people of God. It shames me even more that some say the church is the bride of Christ and that Israel is the bride of God the Father. Folks, that is so contrary to everything Paul has said in this passage. It's not even funny. There is one people of God. God wanted to make them one. You've got people that continue to say, the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church. And again, if you define church correctly, okay, I guess you can call it that. However, they say that so we will not assume that our rapture is the same as the rapture of Israel. And folks, it's the same thing, same resurrection. Because okay? we're, all, we're all together. We're all one in Christ. Fellow citizens with the saints. And I believe he's referring to those of old. So in Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21 verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now jump down to verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Okay? Now who is the lamb? Is it the Father or the Son? It's the Son. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the church or of the world. Right? Of the world. And so, it says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, that holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gate twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, and the north three gates, and the south three gates, and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
So notice this city is referred to as the bride, the lamb's wife. We see it has um, 12 gates that are a part of this city. It kind of sounds like a structure. We see it has 12 foundations. And those 12 foundations have the name of the apostles. The gates have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. Folks, could this be the building that Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2? He said we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He's been talking about how we're fellow citizens with the saints. That He's talking about how God has made both Jew and Gentile one. Folks, there is absolutely no doubt that the bride is all who are in Christ. And that includes the Old Testament saints. There is, no, there is no distinction between those two. And you know, there was, a, there was a big hit song. I remember when it first came out. I, I hate to admit, I even liked it too. But it's that stupid song, I Can Go In. Who's heard I Can Go In? Okay, a very emotional song. Okay, there's some great lines in it. But it's this person dreaming about, you know, going into heaven and seeing all these different groups going in. And they see the company of martyrs going in. It's like, I can't go in with them. You know, it sees all these Old Testament saints going in. Uh, I, I can't remember all the words of the song. I'm not going to try to sing it right now. But it's like talking about these different groups. And, and this person, they see all these different groups going in. It's like, I can't go in with these people. But boy, then all of a sudden they see that last group. So, you know, starting off with the thief on the cross. Starting off with them, isn't that interesting? I guess that's when the new dispensation of salvation started. And th- these are the ones saved by grace. And it's like, I can go in with them. And, you know, and that part sounds pretty good and everything, very emotional. But everybody's going in that way, folks. We're all going in the same way. That song is basically teaching you different ways into heaven. I mean, absolutely ridiculous folks that you know what that comes from dispensational theology a woman wrote that song okay and you know they're not always the best and let me tell you women have written some great songs i'm not trying to pick on anybody i i like fanny crosby there's some good doctrine there but it's just like i think that woman went to some ruckmanite camp meeting or something like that heard something on dispensationalism got inspired it's like man that's that's a bad song folks okay i put a ban on that song uh in this church and uh, whenever I've had, you know, like other groups come in, that song was so popular. I remember when, once I realized how dumb that was, I remember we had like a college tour group and like all the college tour groups were singing that. And I just, I did, I just started making a habit of asking what songs you're going to do just in case they were wanting to do that one. And, uh, you know, and thankfully nobody's tried to sing that song here. Um, and if, uh, and I might as well just put that out in case any of you hear it and you don't understand how stupid it is. Don't don't sing that song here, okay? It's not okay. But th- this bride, okay, this building or temple, whatever you want to call it, these people of God, it, it's what God always intended. This is what was God's will from the foundation of the world. It was the good pleasure of His will to have a people. These people that God was looking for were those who would be in Christ. Not a people who had done some work. No, people who had received cleansing from the Son, Jesus Christ. 
And so religion, it's always looking for a type of people, you know, or a, a, a raise to a certain level of morality, some good works, maybe a level of religious performance. But what God was looking for was a people who professed faith in His Son. He wanted a people who recognized who they were and who God was and that they understand that God provided everything that was needed to make that happen. And if you got saved, you should give Him the glory. And you know what? One of these days when we get to heaven, we're going to be giving Him the glory. Once we've seen Him and we've seen heaven, we'll be singing, Thou art worthy. But you know what? While I believe we're all going to be doing it then, I think it is 100% appropriate to go ahead and do it right now. I think it's 100% appropriate. We're going to keep singing songs like Worthy is a Lamb and singing all, you know, all praise be to God and things like that because He is worthy. He has done it all. This is, and this salvation that we preach is what God always planned, God always intended. And so I believe in a new temple that's coming. I believe in another temple that's going to come. I believe it's going to be a glorious temple, but it's not going to be a temple made with hands. I believe we are that temple. And I believe that's what we're seeing in Revelation 21, exactly what Paul talked about. And if you're saved, you are a part part of that same building that Abraham was a part of, that Moses was a part of, the thief on the cross, and all who've ever been saved. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. I pray this message was a... Lord, if anything, I just pray it gets us a little more excited about our salvation. Lord, I pray you'll help us to learn these uh, passages well so we'll not be deceived by some of the false prophets out there uh, teaching their Calvinism and dispensationalism from them, but we'll uh, take the Word for what it says and follow the truths of it and uh, do our best to tell as many people as we can about the free gift of salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.